scripture reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. This is God's word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to spend some time this, this evening looking at this great passage on the resurrection. And in, in the early pages of uh, his book, Surprised by Joy, N.T. Wright, who's arguably one of the, the greatest New Testament scholars of our day, he says this, From Plato to Hegel and beyond, some of the greatest philosophers declared that what you thought about death and life beyond it is the key to thinking seriously about everything else. And indeed, that it provides one of the main reasons for thinking seriously about anything at all. And according to the New Testament, especially this passage, that sentiment could not be more true. Look what Paul writes in this passage in verse 19. When he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here in, in this great chapter on the resurrection of Jesus, Paul is essentially saying this. You take away the resurrection of Jesus and you take away Christianity. And with it, any reason for hope at all. This topic of the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely central to the Christian faith. And so Paul spends just short of 60 verses in this chapter in 1 Corinthians explaining to us the meaning and significance of the resurrection. And if I could summarize it for us, 
uh, all 60 of these verses <laughs> in one sentence. I, this is my attempt for you. That the resurrection of Jesus gives hope to all who belong to him not, that not even death can defeat. That's what this passage is about. That the resurrection of Jesus gives hope to all who belong to him that not even death can defeat. And hope, according to the Bible, it isn't wishful thinking that perhaps it all might work out in the end. Now, hope in in the New Testament is always oriented toward a person. It's bound up with the person of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, and especially his resurrection from the dead. There is no idea or concept of hope in the Bible apart from this great event. And therefore, what we're going to learn tonight from this passage is three things about how only the resurrection of Jesus can bring into your life the hope that you really need for today, but not just for today. The hope that you really need forever. So I want to look with you and and learn about the foundation of Christian hope, the reach of Christian hope, and then we'll finish with the future of Christian hope. So first, let's look at the foundation of Christian hope. Look here in the first eight verses with me. And in particular, I want you to see here, when Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to five hundred more believers. And then he appeared to James and the rest of the apostles. And then finally he appeared to the apostle Paul. What is, why does he say that? What does that tell us about the very character of Christianity? Well, here's what it tells us. That the Bible understands the resurrection not as a religious symbol that's meant to inspire but as a particular event in human history that is of the very, it is the most important part of Christianity. Christianity is built on an historic event. It is built on the life and death and finally the resurrection of Jesus. It's really important to understand that. The Bible does not understand the resurrection as a metaphor for sort of spiritual reinvigoration or a do-over in your life. When the Bible talks about the resurrection, it's talking about an historical, literal event of the God-man, the Son of God, rising from the dead. And Paul here tells us that these events of which the gospel is, is made up of are of first importance. Now, one of, the, one, of the, one of the things that that means for us is that the most important thing in your life is not you. Which I know can sound kind of insulting, but when you let this sink in, especially in light of the truths of the Scriptures, that's really good news. It means that there is someone greater and bigger and more powerful than you who's in charge. There is somebody, though, who also understands you 
and your experience even better than you do. That the good news of the Christian gospel is an announcement of good news. And in fact, all serious reflection about God or ourselves and life and death, it begins here. Where Paul begins with what he calls again of first importance that Jesus came according to the scriptures. That this didn't come out of anywhere. But these events are actually the fulfillment of God's long-standing plan and promise to start over. And to start over in such a way that would guarantee that anyone connected with this Jesus would experience that same new beginning. But as we focus in on and remind ourselves, as Paul does here, that Christianity is built on historic events, once for all events that changed the course of human history forever, it does raise the question, how can we be sure that it really happened? And Paul here is, takes up that question because he's actually speaking to folks at, for, in the church in Corinth who are saying that there is no resurrection from the dead. And so it's worth pausing for a moment to look at and ask the question, is what Paul wrote, not to mention the rest of the New Testament, really historically reliable? Is it really based on eyewitness accounts of the resurrection that you and I can stake your life on and build your life on? And he addresses this question by essentially appealing to or describing four different resurrection appearances of Jesus after he rose from the dead. Where he says first in verse 5 that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. And that's where I want us to focus for a moment. Think about what Paul has just said there. He is writing a letter and from both uh, conservative or liberal scholars, all essentially agree that this letter was written around 55 AD. And when Paul writes this letter, he here says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 believers at one time, most of whom are still alive when Paul wrote this letter. Now what does that tell us? What that tells us is that those who were questioning or, or doubting that there is any resurrection, Paul is essentially inviting them to go and ask these people. There are hundreds of people still alive who saw Jesus alive from the dead. Go talk to them. You can verify this. You can check it out. We're not making this up. And even if we accept this, for the sake of the argument, if we accept what we're saying, that 1 Corinthians was written in 55 AD, when all of these people were still alive, and we compare it with the generally accepted dates of all the other New Testament documents, what we discover is that at least 20 out of the 27 New Testament books were written 
within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Now, that doesn't maybe perhaps resolve all of our questions about, can we really trust the Bible? But it's a start. And in fact, I could put it even this way, we could state it more strongly, that as uh, New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce puts it, he says, the time elapsing between the evangelic events and the writing of most of the New Testament books was, from the standpoint of historical research, satisfactorily short. For in assessing the trustworthiness of ancient historical writings, one of the most important questions is, how soon after the events took place were they then written down? And I I won't bore you with details about all of that except to say, the events of which the New Testament records That time between the events and the documents that record them is perhaps one of the shortest of any ancient document that we have. And not only that, when we begin to look at comparing the New Testament to other ancient documents, and especially how many manuscripts do we have? What kind of evidence do we even have for these books? When you begin to compare the manuscript evidence, the data that we have for the New Testament, we have more manuscript evidence for the New Testament than we have for any other ancient document. Exponentially so. In other words, when Paul here says these events that Christianity is built on historic events, we have every reason to believe that these pages of the New Testament are as reliable as any other ancient document, and even more so. And in fact, to put it another way, if we are going to conclude that this book is not reliable, every classics department across the country would need to shut down. Paul here is showing us that here we have a reliable historical account of the eyewitness Accounts to the resurrection of Jesus. But let's come down from, from that sort of academic discussion and ask the question, what practical difference does this really make? That Christianity is built on history, real events of this one man in the ancient Near East who died and rose again. Well, there are many ways we could talk about this, but let me just give you one. That the resurrection brings great comfort to our suffering and our hardship. You see, when you begin to understand that Christianity is built on somebody else's life, on his obedience, on his suffering and death and resurrection, what that means is he understands your suffering. That Jesus endured a cosmic suffering and alienation and loss on the cross and yet rose from the dead. And it is only that event that then allows the Apostle Paul to write these very famous words in Romans chapter 8 when he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
See, if Christianity is not built on the historic events of which it speaks, those words mean nothing. But Paul here is telling us that indeed it has been built on these great events. And so that's the foundation of our Christian hope. But now we need to ask, who is this hope for? Which brings us to the second idea and point here of the reach of Christian hope. Let me ask you, do you feel tonight that you are perhaps beyond the reach of God's grace? And if you do, then you're really not any different than the Apostle Paul. Let's look at how that's so. Look in verse 9. After Paul talks about these various appearances of Jesus after his resurrection, he says about himself, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now listen for a moment here. We have here... The Apostle Paul, who is the author of the vast majority of the New Testament, arguably the most influential person in the history of the human race, and here he describes himself as the least of the apostles, unworthy to be even called a representative of Jesus because he persecuted the church. Let me just tell you what he's referring to. Acts chapter 8, after... Stephen, in chapter 7, has been stoned to death. Verse 1 of chapter 8 says, And Saul approved of his execution. Saul here is Paul. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering House after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the Apostle Paul. And then in chapter 9, but but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Do you feel like you're beyond the reach of this hope, of this grace? The Apostle Paul in this letter stands here and writes to us to say to you, no one is beyond the reach of this grace. Here we have Paul himself indicting himself, persecuting the Lord Jesus, going after his people, putting them in prison, trying to shut down this thing that he calls the way. And what happens when the resurrected Christ breaks into a person's life. We see here in verse 10 two things that happen. First, God's grace transforms your self-identity. Look in verse 10. Verse 10, Paul says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. In other words, 
He was no longer defined by his past, but by God's grace. Now, what was his past? Well, we just read some from Acts chapter 8, but then also in Philippians chapter 3, listen to how he describes himself. He says, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But then listen to what he says. But whatever I gained... I count it as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, when the resurrected Christ breaks into your life, everything that you used to, to know or define yourself by is now of no account. That Jesus gives Paul and everyone who belongs to Jesus, he gives you an entirely new identity that's based on grace alone. His free grace, his forgiveness, his love, his affection. But not only does he give you a, a new identity, he gives you a whole new power for living. Listen, again in verse 10 he says, And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I but the grace of God that is, with, that is in me or with me. Paul talks about this very idea in his letter to the church in, Philippian, in Philippi when he says this. He says, work out your salvation. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What's he talking about there? It's the very same thing he says about himself here in 1 Corinthians 15. What he's essentially telling us is that when Jesus breaks into your life and grace takes root in your life, the Christian life is now all about working out what you've already been given. That to follow after Jesus is not how do you somehow take this good news and work it in. It's already been given to you. It also is not the case that you somehow have to work it up by your own effort or generate it. No, it's been given to you and your task, what it looks like to live by faith, is to work it out. What are the implications of the gospel? What does it mean that you've been forgiven? How does that change the way that you treat people who mistreat you? So here for Paul... This grace that he's been given was not in vain, but in fact, it is not him who's working, but the grace of God that is with me. Or as he says in Philippians chapter 2, it's God who is at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. See, all power for Christian living comes from the gospel. And therefore, this reach of Christian hope, no one is so bad that they are beyond the reach of God's grace. And no one is so good they are beyond the need for it. That is the reach of our Christian hope. But while this Christian hope is anchored in history and it's able to reach into the deepest and darkest parts of our lives, that's not all. This Christian hope, rooted and anchored in the resurrection, it reaches even further out. It gives us a future 
beyond the grave. This is our, the future of our Christian hope. Where do we find this? Well, notice again what Paul has said in verse 19. He says, if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The entirety of your future Christian hope is bound up in this one little word, first fruits. It's an agricultural term. It's a term that describes after a farmer plants his crop early in the season, in the early parts of the spring or summer perhaps, and after a few weeks there begins to be signs that the crops are growing. And it's called the first fruits. And it's a sign that the crop has taken root, that it will continue to grow. It is the projection of a full harvest that's yet to come. And here Paul uses this metaphor, this agricultural metaphor, to describe the connection between a believer in Jesus and his death and resurrection and your death and resurrection. That Jesus is here described as the first fruits from the dead. It's an organic connection. So what Paul is trying to teach us here in this one word is that when Jesus is risen from the dead and he is described here as the first fruits, there is going to be a harvest to come. And that harvest is guaranteed because he is the first fruits. He is the precursor to it. He's the preview for it. And therefore, to have hope in Christ, to be united to him, is to say this, that your union with Christ, to be connected to him, is to say that his destiny becomes your destiny. So Paul then says in verse 23, which is not printed in your folder, but Paul writes this, he says, each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Or as he says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here's the basic point. That to believe in Jesus, to believe in the resurrection means that all who belong to him will be with him. Now, I know that we are a church who has a peculiarly profound and deep experience of death. For a relatively young church and a relatively small church, this is one of the sweetest truths that we as a church have. That those who die in Christ will be with him when he returns. When you die in Christ, 
you will be with him when he returns. That is the future hope of the Christian faith. But it's not only that. Paul wants you to also realize that this future hope of Christianity is not, as I was saying earlier, some disembodied, nebulous, wandering in the netherworld. The Bible never conceives of heaven as some disembodied, impersonal state. The Bible describes heaven as a new creation. It is the redemption of our bodies, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. What that means is that God cares about His creation. However broken, however twisted, however unjust, however devastating it is, the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection, tells us that when He comes back, He will raise you bodily from the dead. The rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is trying to describe this amazing mystery. And it, it, it goes beyond the, the reaches of our imagination. So think about your resurrection body, the way in which the Apostle John describes the streets of the heavenly city. He describes the streets of the heavenly Jerusalem as streets paved with gold. Have you ever seen streets paved with gold? Do you have any idea what kind of city that might be like if the streets were of pure gold? I have no idea other than to say that city must be amazing. It is beyond our comprehension. So when Paul goes on in this chapter to describe our resurrection bodies as spiritual bodies... Bodies that are like Jesus' resurrection body. He's simply saying, our resurrection bodies, flesh and bone, will be beyond your wildest dreams. That everything that is wrong will be made right. See, the glorious news of the Christian hope is that it doesn't depend on you and it doesn't depend on me. It all depends on Jesus Christ who entered into history to suffer and to die to reconcile us to God and to make all things new. It all depends on Jesus who did not come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners like the Apostle Paul, like you and me. It all depends on Jesus who as the first fruits from the dead will raise from the dead all those who belong to him. See, this is the foundation of our hope. This is the reach of our hope. And this is the future of our hope. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have entered into history that Though you have made all things by the word of your power and you made it all good. And though we have ruined it by running away from you and seeking to be our own lords and saviors. 
you have not left us there, but you've sent your son to pay the penalty for our sin and to rise again from the dead, to put end to sin and to death and to all of its devastating consequences so that now, though we wait, we wait in hope. We wait in hope of that great day when He will come back. We wait in hope of that great day when you will make all things new, that we will experience the redemption of our bodies, that we will be with you, that we will see you face to face, and that we will experience eternal joy, and that faith will give way to sight, and we will eat with you and rejoice with you and commune with you forever. Would you please, Lord Jesus, come quickly. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen.